0: Hello and welcome to "Insure and Certain Hope, a podcast about Christ, faith, the church, and other things. I am the rector, the, the reverend Jedediah Fox, the rector of the Church of the Redeemer in Kenmore, Washington, and your host. I'm glad you're with us for this episode. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the second half of the Liturgy of the Word that is everything that happens from the sermon through the offertory. So I hope that you will enjoy it. As we begin the second part of the Liturgy of the Word, we come across the sermon, And the sermon is a little bit different than what we've dealt with before because everything else has been written for the celebrant, uh, the priest. It comes from the Bible or from prayers of ancient derivation or sometimes, I mean, or sometimes less ancient, uh, like the 15th century. So it's still 600 years old prayers. Uh, But with the sermon, now the practice is that it is often written by the celebrant themselves. And and this is an old idea. Uh, it's been required at every Sunday service, at every every um, reading of the Mass, since the 1549 prayer book. It's, it's understood that if you have a Eucharist, you have a sermon in the midst of it. And there are lots of ways to about thinking about this. Um, but the best one, I think, is the Eucharist. You know, when you have a Eucharist, what do you do? You you break apart the bread so that it's broken down into edible pieces. Well, we have to break the bread of the word that we've just heard, right? Old Testament, Psalm, Epistle, Gospel. We have to break that up so that it fits into our lives and it makes sense to us. So that's what the sermon does. It takes this idea and we bring it into our own context, And it's the the job of the preacher, whether they are also the celebrant or not, although in most cases they are, um, to to help us feed on that word within our lives. Um, It is something that we do together in many ways. Um, And and that's why it's important that it be something that uh, is contextual to the community that it's being preached in. You know, if I were to get up uh, as a priest to get up on on Sunday and talk about something that no one else experienced and be unable to articulate what it was like or what was happening, uh, it would be it wouldn't actually help us understand what the, what was happening in the gospel. And so, that's the responsibility of the sermon. Now, in uh, previous times, it was very common. In fact, not for the sermon to be written, uh, but for, to give, uh, a, a pre written sermon. In, uh, they had books of prepared sermons, not, not written by the preacher themselves, but, but written by, by, um, written down in a book that the preacher would read. And, uh, that used to be the, the, practice for a long time in england because not everybody's really a great preacher especially if the expectation is you're going to be preaching for 45 minutes or an hour or two hours or four hours whatever the expectation is depending on what part of the world you live in what your what your religious tradition is um in our tradition now in the 20th and 21st century the expectation is like mm, 15 minutes if you've got something really serious and you can make it feel not that long, you could maybe even get away with 20 every once in a while, but 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and, and at weekday services, maybe even like five to seven. Um, that's really the expectation that most people have about the sermon nowadays in the Episcopal church in most congregations, seven to 10 to 15 minutes, depending on the context uh, so you don't have a lot of time, but you also don't have too much to write. You figure um, a ten-minute sermon is usually around a thousand words. So, uh, and then the backstop of the sermon, of course, is always the Nicene Creed. Um, at least on a Sunday morning, and and that is sort of this hedge of uh, whatever the whatever the preacher just said, this is what we believe. This is the core belief that holds us together. Even if you don't agree with the priest, even if you don't, even uh, if the priest, priest says something that seems really wacky, this is the core of what we believe. Um, so the Nicene Creed, of course, is not really the Nicene Creed. It's the Nicene Constantinople Creed, which we covered uh, several months ago in our in the history portion of um, this podcast. Uh, but it is it is something that it's a document that people find challenging. And oftentimes there is, and and not oftentimes, but um, recently there has been some pushback about whether we should be saying it at all. Um, Because there are things that people struggle with in it. And I think the thing to keep in mind about the Nicene Creed and about um, a lot of our prayers is that we're, we're living into them. We don't have to agree with them or understand them We're, We're our, our work is to live into them to try and, um, To try and live them out with our lives rather than trying to understand them with our heads. Uh, So we say the Nicene Creed and then we come to the prayers of the people. And this is an important part of the service um, because this is the point at which we switch from praising God to um, prayers of petition and intercession, right? This is the first time we've gotten the petitions of prayers and intercession, um, at, at, in a formal context. And the prayers of the people are just that prayers f- that come from the people. And in in theory, in all good order, they should be said by a person who is not the celebrant. Um, in some contexts, uh, the deacon will say it, will say we'll say the prayers of the people. And in other contexts, it will be a lay person, often for, for ease. It will be the same person who read the old testament and or the epistle reading uh some lay person who's assigned to that task for the for that service and they bring prayers that are supposed to be um that aren't necessarily uh, all what the people sent into the church i mean we we do solicit prayers and if you have prayers please send them into the church that's fine but um there are, there are several categories and there are several kinds of ways that we, we say the prayers of the people, um, but they're, they're summed up uh, in sort of um, a few categories. Regardless of what form we use, and we do use different forms throughout the year here at the Church of the Redeemer uh, in, our, in our main service, uh, prayers and intercessions are always offered for the universal church, its members and its mission, the nation and all in authority, the welfare of the world, the concerns of the local community, those who suffer and those in any trouble, and the departed with the commemoration of saint when appropriate. Um, so the prayer book in it has, in, the, in Rite 2, has six forms of, of the prayers of the people. And of course, you can use that list that I just read off. Uh, to create any number of different kinds of prayers with different themes or emphases within them, uh, as long as they're authentic to the community. Remember, this is this is an opportunity always for the community to be in conversation with God, for the community to be in relationship with God. And so we bring a, a, an authentic expression of community to these prayers, to this conversation with God. Uh, and and then it's summed up by the priest in in the collect at the end of the prayers usually. And after the prayers of the people, you have the conf- You have, except in certain cases, the confession of sin. And the confession of the sin is the acknowledgment that we are not perfect. Right, the acknowledgment that we are fallible, that we fall and fail. And it is an opportunity to put into practice our baptismal covenant in a community setting with a communal confession. And that opportunity is one that we take up most of the time. It's especially important in Lent. Um, sometimes to the point where we say it earlier, right? We have the option to have said it what in what's called the penitential order, uh, which is, where we say the confession at the very beginning, and oftentimes we'll read the, um, the Decalogue, that is the Ten Commandments, uh, along with it. But we say the, the confession most of the time, right after the prayers of the people, right before, uh, almost as the last thing before we, we go into the Eucharist. And this confession at least in rite 2 most of the time is about things done left un- and left undone in thought and word and deed um and where i think this confession in rite the, the confession in right 2 is um you know better in some ways than than like the eow some of the eow confessions because there are a couple in enriching our worship uh where i think that this is um, maybe a bit of a better confession, if you look at it on page three, just a sec here, um, let's say 352, because that's the penitential order one. Uh, if you look at the confession on page 352 or 355, 354, whatever it is. 360. Sorry, 360. Either 352 or 360. If you look at that confession, um, you have an actual apology in it. In the 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, n- line of the confession. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. So we apologize to God and we. And we say that we will, we will turn around and make amends. And then we ask for forgiveness. So we don't ask for forgiveness in this confession until we repent. Now in the old prayer book, um, there was an extra line that was, um, in the confession, which was an interesting line that was mm, maybe not the most useful line and probably why they left it out of the current prayer book. Uh, there was an addition to the confession, and there is no health in us. And if I were to guess, and I haven't done the research on this, but if I were to guess, the point of that is to emphasize that we don't have control over our, uh, over our inability to be perfect. We can't make ourselves be perfect. We can't absolve ourselves. That we have to be doing this in relation to you because you are, because God is the, you being God, because God is the one who can absolve us and God is the one who can make us whole and healthy. Um, But it also sort of echoed this very, very Protestant idea of, um, that comes from Augustine of Hippo of humans being all bad, um, you know, original sin, total depravity, all of those ideas. Um, there are shades of that within that sentence, and that probably is why it got left out. But the idea is that we we take this time to communally acknowledge that we aren't perfect, and that's okay, um, but that we are through this service, reorienting ourselves yet again, living to that second promise of the baptismal covenant, when you fall into sin, return and repent to the Lord. This is an opportunity to publicly, in the midst of community, do that together, to acknowledge that none of us here at the church is perfect, that all of us are in need of confession and absolution. So then, uh, one of two things happens. And this is this is where things get in. Um, one of the things... One of the points where if you don't have a priest, things get a little interesting. Um, so if there is no priest at a service, then it is the job of whoever is leading the service, whether they're a lay person or a deacon, to stand up and make absolution. Um, and that the, the lay person, or sorry, the deacon or the lay person does not stand up um, as a priest would. Because the priest, when they make absolution, stands up, makes the sign of the cross with other people, and and uses... Second person pronouns, you, um, to offer God's forgiveness, right? That's one of the things that that is a particular, a particular and peculiar role of priests is we get to absolve people of their sins, um, and when a deacon or a lay person does it, they ask God on behalf of the people to absolve the people of their sins. Um, using us language, we language, first person, plural, uh, language, absolve us of our sins, have mercy on us through Jesus Christ, etc., cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the belief is that the absolution is no less effective for the congregation, which is really fantastic. Isn't, I mean, it, uh, it, it's important in a lot of ways because we don't want to think of, you know, this, if, if there's a congregation that has a lay person leading or a, or a deacon leading that they're sort of a, um, a second class. It's a second class service. It's a, it's, it's an okay service, but it's not the most important service. Um, like this is, this is a, uh, absolutely equal service. It's just different. And so then the final thing that happens after all of this is that there is the offertory. And this is actually a really important moment uh, because it's the last thing that happens before we move from the liturgy of the word into the, what we call the liturgy of the table or the liturgy of the Eucharist. And what happens is we, uh, the, the priest stands up and says a sentence, right? That's that's the functional thing that happens. Um, you know, whether it's walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us in offering sacrifice to God or... Let us with gladness now offer our oblations of life and labor to the Lord or, um, uh, offer unto the Lord the honor to his name, bring offerings and come into his courts or something else like that. Um, the point of this is to remind people what's about to happen, which is that the, the, the right, the religious event this ceremony at table that is about to take place is not just about the bread and the wine. It's not just about the Eucharist itself. It is about offering the offering of ourselves, which is what the whole point of this service was the whole entire time, about being in relationship with God and offering ourselves as a part of the body of Christ to God and being fed by God within that promise in God's body and blood through the liturgy of the table. So that all of this leads up to this moment now where we end the liturgy of the word and we begin the liturgy of the table. And this transition point is um, the transition between the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the table. And it's where we'll end today. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode of and Certain, Certain Hope. I hope you'll join us again next time and until then may God's blessing be with you. Christ's peace be with you. The Spirit's outpouring be with you now and forevermore.